Hello, this is Marc Amber speaking, Chief Editor of the European Respiratory Journal. In the October issue of the journal, we are delighted to publish an important review article by Professor Ganesh Raghu on the lessons from clinical trials in idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis over the past 25 years. It is my great pleasure to discuss this article with Professor Raghu from the Center of Interstitial Lung Diseases at the University of Washington in Seattle, United States. Hello, Ganesh. Hi, Mark. Good morning. Yeah, good to speak with you. So, to start with, uh, could you tell us uh, what are the lessons learned from clinical trials of prednisone, azathioprine, and NAC in IPF? Yeah, thank you, Mark. First of all, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to discuss this review article, which uh, was a privilege for me to summarize the lessons learned from the clinical trials. The article, the trial that you are referring to is actually called the Panther IPF clinical trial, um, which was a, a milestone study in the hallmark, in the arena of the clinical trials. The importance of conducting the clinical trials with true placebo-controlled patient population is demonstrated in the Panther IPF clinical trial. Mark, you'll recall that the triple therapy of the prednisone, azathioprine, and uh, N-acetylcysteine had been accepted as a standard of care for patients. Based on the results of an earlier study called Epigenia trial done in Europe, where that study demonstrated efficacy of combined prednisone and azathioprine compared to the N-acetylcysteine added. In other words, addition of N-acetylcysteine with prednisone and azathioprine uh, showed an efficacy. But the problem with that study was there was no true placebo-controlled trial. So the IPF-NET clinical trial took that seriously and designed a multi-center clinical trial with a true placebo-controlled arm. The most important lesson learned was that the triple therapy that had been used in worldwide as a standard of care was turned out to be harmful as more patients either died or got hospitalized compared to the patients on no therapy. The findings were so remarkable in a negative way, were immediately released to the world as a health alert, alert news by the NIH in the United States, and then it marked the end of the era of anti-inflammatory treatment, especially with prednisone, azathioprine, and acetylcysteine for good. In essence, this Panther trial is considered it was a negative study, but in fact, in my opinion, is a positive study. The positive is reflected that we stopped the triple therapy immediately and the patient with IPF was spared from the harmful effects of the triple therapy that we were unfortunately, subjecting patients to prior to that study. Well, thanks for sharing this lesson because uh, it is indeed a very important conclusion from a negative trial. So, second question, what are the lessons learned from anticoagulants and interferon gamma in IPF? Okay, I'll, I'll take that answer and split that into two because the two trials where they are the trials for the anticoagulations and interferon gamma were separate. First is the, there were two trials determining, to determine the safety and efficacy of anticoagulation for patients with IPF. An earlier trial done in Japan reported a survival benefit 
in patients treated with anticoagulation. However, the trial was poorly designed. There were lots of dropouts and was not double-blinded. So to follow up the suggestion in that earlier Japanese trial, ACE IPF trial was designed to determine the safety and efficacy using warfarin as an anticoagulation for treatment with IPF. And the results in that trial using true placebo control determined that warfarin was in fact also harmful as more patients in the warfarin-treated arm were hospitalized with respiratory hospitalization or died during the study period. So this result really led to the recommendation against the treatment of IPF with warfarin and the 2015 updated guidelines for treatment by the joint ATS-ERS and the JIRS and LAT, American Thoracic Society, gave a very strong against recommendation the use of warfarin in patients with IPF, but also deferred the need to use warfarin in patients with IPF for other indications, such as deepness thrombosis or thromboembolic episodes to the clinician. So in other words, the study showed that warfarin was harmful if you would treat the patients for IPF, but the patients, if they turn out to have deep venous thrombosis or other indications that warfarin would be indicated, the trial did not test that particular cohort of patients. So anticoagulation using warfarin turned out to be very harmful for patients with IPF without the thromboembolism as a confounding problem. Thank you, Ganesh. So what about interferon gamma in IPF? Yeah, that is also another interesting story that unfolded. After an initial clinical trial, which was a very small initial trial done in a single center in Vienna that demonstrated the efficacy of gamma interferon in nine patients treated with gamma interferon, that study was really too good to believe, even though it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1999, and then a follow-up large phase three multinational clinical trial done yielded negative results. The results were negative and were published in the New England Journal of Medicine back, I think, in 2004. But a post-hoc analysis in a subgroup of patients in that large phase three clinical trial suggested a survival benefit that led to a third definitive phase three trial called the INSPIRE trial using survival as the primary outcome. That study clearly demonstrated that gamma interferon was not efficacious at all. And the study also illustrated that the results from post-hoc or subgroup analysis are simply hypothesis generating, and conclusions should not and cannot be drawn for efficacy based on subgroup analysis as the INSPIRE trial done to test the hypothesis generated in the first phase three clinical trial clearly showed that it was not efficacious. So the study clearly demonstrated that it failed in terms of gamma interferon, but also demonstrated another important thing as far as I'm concerned is the feasibility of conducting a clinical trial in patient population with IPF using survival as a primary outcome was feasible. So those were the two lessons that I learned, and I think it is useful for people to realize it as well. Thanks. So let's move now to uh, the lessons from clinical trials of endothelin receptor antagonists in the IPF. Well, again, the biology plausibility. 
of the endothelial receptor antagonists as a potential antifibrotic agents for patients with IPF was tested in multiple phase three clinical trials. The lessons learned were the following. Number one, endothelial receptor antagonists are not useful for patients with IPF. Number two, the dual endothelial receptor antagonist, the bosentan and the macetent, even though negative, was safe, but it was not efficacious. But on the other hand, a selective dual ERA, the amrocentin, was harmful in patients with IPF. And as you and we all know that amrocentin is indicated for patients with pulmonary hypertension. But in this particular trial where amrocentin was used, also tested the efficacy in the patients with pulmonary hypertension. And it was shown clearly that whether you have pulmonary hypertension or not, amrocentin was in fact harmful. So patients with amrocentin really had the respiratory hospitalization and dying, and so amrocentin is now considered appropriately as an absolute contraindication for patients with IPF, even if they have pulmonary hypertension. The other lesson that was learned in that particular trial was that the pulmonary hypertension was present as defined by the gold standard right heart catheterization measurement of the pulmonary artery mean pressure of greater than 24 was present in 12% of patients, even if the patients did not have advanced disease such as honeycombing. So that was an eye-opener as well. So that then leads to a situation that if bosentan and mesotentin is safe but not efficacious for IPF, perhaps the safety profile of mesotentin, for example, should be studied in future trials in a very well-defined patients with pulmonary hypertension as mesotentin was safe. So that remains to be open to test for patients with pulmonary hypertension in IPF. Well, thanks again. And uh, now let's move to um, type 5 uh, phosphodiesterase inhibitors. So any lessons from clinical trials of sildenafil in IPF? Yeah, two, two main lessons. One, we, they, we did a study taking a very, very advanced stages of IPF patients. These patients were quite sick and they could hardly walk beyond 50 meters and even requiring supplemental oxygen. So we tested the patient, this advanced patient population with the hypothesis that there would be high pulmonary hypertension. And so using sildenafil as a phosphodiesterase inhibitor over a period of 24 weeks, we showed that the studies showed called the step IPS, although negative using walk distance as the primary endpoint, the second of the endpoints, which was not a post-doc, it was a pre-specified endpoint, showed improved gas exchange status and quality of life with the use of sildenafil. So that was encouraging. And in a post-doc subgroup analysis, the patients who clearly had echocardiograph evidence of right ventricle dysfunction and enlargement had a more pronounced outcomes. So these findings warrant further trials to determine the safety and efficacy of sildenafil in patients with advanced stages of IPF manifesting pulmonary hypertension. Let's move now to uh, the lessons uh, learned from uh, clinical trials of pyrfenidone in IPF. Okay, well, as you very well know, pyrfenidone has been around in clinical trials for quite some time. The first trial was a, a phase two 
study, an open label study published in 1999 that had encouraging results, and then it led to very well-conducted multinational clinical trials on, on, on placebo-controlled trials for phase three called the capacity one and capacity two trials and the ASCEND trial. And what it demonstrated very clearly at the end of all of these clinical trials. And then there was another trial done in, there were two trials done in Japan. So the trials from perfenadone were very many and clearly demonstrated at the end of all of these clinical trials that the rate of decline in the slope of forced vital capacity using that as a measure of primary outcome over a period of 12 months was significantly slowed in patients treated with perfenadone. Several patients manifested the symptomatic side effects that had been documented in earlier clinical trials. And these side effects were predominantly upper gastrointestinal related, but they were all tolerable and patient tolerated upon dosage reduction in the context of clinical trial. There was also some photosensitivity skin reactions uh, noted in patients with perfenadone, all of which were uh, tolerated. Well, that was the uh, a good lesson uh, in terms of the perfenadone uh, as far as the rate of the decline in the slope of the FPC over a period of 12 months. Similarly, uh, the clinical trials using nintanidab, a tyrosine kinase inhibitor, following a very strong encouraging positive results in a phase two trial called the TOMORROW trial published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2011, yielded positive results and then was tested in a robust scientific manner in the phase three clinical trial called the IMPULSES 1 and 2 trials and the rate of the decline in the slope of the FPC over a period of 12 months was also slowed down in patients treated with nintanidab. And several patients in these trials also manifested symptomatic side effects, predominantly diarrhea, but they were all well tolerated in the context of clinical trial as well as uh, decreasing uh, some dosage reductions in the context. So those, the nintanidab clearly demonstrated also the decline in the slope of FEC, which these two clinical trials for the very first time was has shown a, a positive effect for the devastating disease IPF until which time there were no studies to demonstrate any positive effects. Well, so that's a major breakthrough uh, in, the, in the landscape of uh, management for patients with IPF. Well, thanks. Uh, a final question. Could you tell us what's next in IPF in terms of novel targets, combination therapy, and timing of intervention? All right. Well, that's a great question. And, 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 and if one goes to the uh, clinical trial.gov, you'll see that there are so many exciting targets that have been targeted uh, beyond those that are modulated by nintanidab and perfenadone. To my knowledge, a couple of two clinical, phase two clinical trials are just completed or near completion and have not been yet reported, uh, published, but reported in the context of uh, Congress, such as uh, recent uh, uh, ERS 2017 in Milan, one of which study was... Uh, uh, using a serum amyloid protein called pentraxin-2, a member of the pentraxin family that uh, stops or reverses the fibrosis in experimental uh, animals. But the recombinant human pentraxin-2 targets the innate 
immune pathway in the pathogenesis of pulmonary fibrosis and IPF, and so the results of the phase twos are encouraging enough that the phase three studies hopefully will be started and embarked um, next year at some point. So that is something exciting to keep an eye on uh, for the results that hopefully will be published soon. The other study that uh, that investigated uh, a monoclonal antibody against the growth factor called connective tissue growth factor as an antifibrotic agent uh, has been pursued in an ongoing uh, phase three clinical trial, which has come to completion, and called that trial is called the PRAISE. And the results of these were, uh, in fact, presented in a breakthrough session on September 12th at the ERS meeting uh, a few days ago in Milan. And the results was quite encouraging enough that we need to keep an eye on this particular compound, a monoclonal antibody against CTGF called the pemruvulumab, uh, given intravenously. So these two studies have got encouraging results in phase two trials that is worthwhile watching out. And I believe these will be, uh, phase three studies will be designed and started uh, next year at some point. The other treatments which we need to keep an eye on is comorbidity, especially with pulmonary hypertension. As far as combined modalities is concerned, there's a study that's ongoing with nintelinab in combination with sildenafil. And that is something to watch out for because the combination targeting the antifibrotic pathways through tyrosine kinase inhibitor and the phosphodiesterase inhibitor for the vasculopathy would be a, a nice study. Uh, the results is, uh, hopefully will be positive. So those are the things that needs to be uh, uh, watched out. There are actually a few novel treatment approaches that are being pursued, and that includes the use of antibiotics. It addresses the concept, the new concept of the lung microbiome in the pathogenesis of IPM, uh, IPF. And there's a design that we're working through the, in the United States called the Clean Up IPF Clinical Trial is underway, just started enrollment. There is another that uh, is coming to a closure, and this is uh, the NIH-sponsored phase two clinical trial called the RAP IPF Clinical Trial that you may be aware of. And the RAP IPF clinical trial is a prospectively randomized clinical trial where patients with IPF demonstrating abnormal acid gastroesophageal reflux were randomized to Nissen fundal plication or antacid treatment and followed for one year. This study is a phase two uh, multicenter clinical trial done in the United States and has just actually been completed and the database is just locked uh, just last week, and the results of this phase two clinical trial are actually eagerly awaited and undoubtedly will provide the much needed insight regarding the surgical correction of asymptomatic abnormal gastroesophageal reflux in patients with IPF. And I believe the results will be available early uh, next year, and that would be another um, important uh, clinical trial to watch out for. And finally, a, another a strategy that is an important strategy upcoming would be the, utilizing the pharmacogenomics using the genotypes, uh, uh, genetic uh, phenotypes uh, for patients with IPF, uh, such as the use of NSDL cysteine stratified by MUC5B and TOLIP genotypes is being currently planned as a phase three clinical trials with the help of the NIH. So these are some exciting newer ways of uh, targeting the 
pathways, different way for patients with IPF that I think is very, very exciting. And uh, we will combat the disease IPF in the near future. Well, indeed, it is a very exciting time uh, in the in the field of uh, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. And uh, we are all very pleased for, for the patients, their families, and uh, the doctors and healthcare providers who who care about them. So thank you so much, Ganesh, for uh, publishing this uh, outstanding paper in the European Respiratory Journal. Uh, your paper really underscores the progresses uh, in the field of IPF in the last quarter of century. We are very proud to publish this paper in the ERJ. Thanks, Ganesh, again. Thank you very much, Mark, and thanks very much for giving me the privilege to publish that as well as the privilege to talk to you and discuss this in this podcast. Yeah, it was my pleasure. So this was Marc Ambert, Chief Editor of the ERJ, discussing today with Ganesh Raghu uh, from the University of Washington in Seattle, United States. Thank you again.